1862, the Virginian soil was soaked with blood as the American Civil War raged. In the Confederate stronghold of Lynchburg, hospitals and cemeteries were filled with thousands of wounded soldiers. Meanwhile, people whispered about a Union attack on the supply depot outside of town. Robert Morris watched all this unfold from the front desk of the upscale Franklin Hotel. The 84-year-old was too old to fight or flee from the war. If Lynchburg came under fire, he'd let his life and legacy go up in flames with it. See, Morris was protecting a secret, one he'd kept hidden for decades. But with the final years of his life ticking down, he knew he needed to find someone to share that secret with. He settled on a young friend whose name has been lost to history, so we'll call him John. One afternoon, Morris invited John to his palatial house on Main Street and locked the door behind him. He retrieved a bulky metal box containing a sheaf of faded documents. They were letters from an adventurer named Thomas J. Beale. Two were written in plain English, but the last three appeared to be a random string of numbers. Morris confided in John. If he could crack the coded messages, they would lead him to a mountain of buried treasure, enough to make anyone rich beyond their wildest dreams. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Beale Ciphers, a set of coded messages supposedly leading to a buried treasure. Today, we'll follow Thomas Beale's storied expedition to the Wild West and explore how he stumbled upon incredible riches. Then, we'll trace the history of his mysterious ciphers as one treasure hunter after another failed to crack the code. Next time, we'll answer a few burning questions involving Beale and his papers. We'll dive into his elusive history and explore whether his codes were actually an elaborate hoax. Finally, we'll look at more recent claims that the treasure has already been found. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life is a highway. 
And on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The secret of Beale's treasure has drawn hundreds of amateur sleuths to the lush forests outside of Lynchburg, Virginia. But few people know the whole tale. It began on a cold January night in 1820. Three wealthy young men, exhausted from their travels, burst into Robert Morris's bed and breakfast and asked for a room. The three strangers had seen Morris's advertisement in the Lynchburg press and were eager to get off their feet. Their leader paid for the rooms and signed his name in the guest book as Thomas J. Beale. Beale seemed polite, well-educated, and extremely charming, especially around women, as Morris would learn over the coming months. His mannerisms suggested he came from an aristocratic family, but there was something rugged and powerful about him, too. His long black hair was in need of a trim, and his skin was darkened, possibly from too much sun. Despite his eloquence, he had the look of someone who'd performed a lot of manual labor. A few days after checking in, Beale's compatriots departed. But Beale stayed for another year. He had plenty of money for rent, and Morris got the sense he had no home to return to. The resident was extremely secretive about his past. Morris guessed from his accent he came from Western Virginia, but he never said a word about his parents or where he grew up. Finally, in March 1821, Beale thanked Morris for his hospitality and rode off into the sunset. Morris never expected to hear from the man again. But almost a year later, in January 1822, Beale returned, this time looking even more swarthy and sunbaked than before. Morris was happy to see him, although Beale was as tight-lipped as ever. This time, he only stayed for a couple of months. Before he left, he asked Morris for a favor. Beale retrieved a locked iron box from his room and handed it to the innkeeper. He said there were papers of extreme importance inside. He needed Morris to hold onto the box for safekeeping. Morris agreed. In May of that year, Morris received a letter from Thomas Beale. It was postmarked from St. Louis. He wrote he journeyed west in search of adventure. He knew he wasn't coming back anytime soon and had specific instructions for what to do with the box. Morris was to wait 10 years for Beale or one of his associates to collect it. But if no one arrived in that time, Morris could open the box and look inside. Beale promised Morris's patience would be greatly rewarded. That letter was the last time anyone ever saw or heard from Thomas Beale. His fate after leaving Morris's house remains unknown. Ten years went by, and the box sat undisturbed in its hiding place, gathering dust. Meanwhile, Morris took a job managing a larger inn called the Franklin Hotel. Every now and then, he would retrieve the box and stare at it for hours. Several times he thought about opening it, but he always got too nervous. It wasn't until 1845, 23 years after Beale's departure, 
that Morris finally worked up the courage to grab a pry bar and rip off the lock. Inside were a series of documents. At the top, a letter addressed to Morris. It detailed Beale's last adventure before arriving at his doorstep in 1822. The story went something like this. Beale had a yearning for life beyond the confines of his affluent world. He wanted to test his mettle by exploring the vast open country just east of the Rocky Mountains. So he gathered approximately 30 other men, all wealthy and all itching for a taste of danger, just like him. In April 1817, they left Virginia for the Wild West, unsure of what they'd find. All they knew was they wanted to kill a lot of game. A month after their departure, they had arrived in the commercial hub of St. Louis, Missouri. They spent several days resting and replenishing their supplies. Then they prepared for the next leg of the journey. They hired a guide who knew the route, and on May 19th, they headed southwest across the Great Plains towards Santa Fe, New Mexico. This was prime hunting ground for bison, but it was also hostile territory. The French had sold their lands in the Midwest to the United States in 1803, but much of the West was still controlled by the Spanish. And they weren't kind to trespassers. The Spanish were dealing with a political crisis back home and violent insurgencies in Mexico. Authorities feared foreign agents would stoke the growing flames of revolution. So they frequently detained any Americans they caught crossing their borders. But skirting the law was part of the fun for Beale and his team. They were doing more than hunting big game. They were chasing adventure. And that's exactly what they found. One evening in the spring of 1818, some members of the party came upon a broken boulder in New Mexico. Inside its crevice was a lump of shiny metal, which they soon discovered was solid gold. They started digging around the area, only to find more gold and silver. Beale had his men partner up, working in shifts to gather as much as they could. However, Beale soon realized they had a bigger problem than getting the riches out of the earth. It wouldn't be long before someone heard about the treasure and came searching for it. They needed to get the hoard out of the region as soon as possible. They loaded the booty onto their horses and started the arduous trek back to Virginia. They risked discovery in every town they visited along the way. One loose lip could get them murdered by someone who coveted their prize. But somehow they kept their secret hidden. When they finally arrived in Virginia in December 1819, Beale and his inner circle searched for a safe place to stash the treasure. No one is sure why they chose to hide it rather than divvy it up amongst themselves. It seems there might have been too much for everyone to carry discreetly. Instead, Beale and his confidants dug a hole and supposedly buried the loot in Bedford County, Virginia. In the meantime, Beale came up with an insurance plan in case anything happened to him. He wrote down the gold's burial spot, along with instructions for how the money was to be divided. Then he encoded those messages, turning letters into numbers. The only way anyone could read them was with a decryption key. Then, 
Beale sealed the messages in an iron box and gave them to Robert Morris to hold on to. In the event of his death, someone was supposed to show up with the key that cracked the codes. But no one ever did, and the box stayed shut until 1845. Back in his sitting room, the now middle-aged Morris put Beale's letter aside and picked up the ciphers, three coded messages of varying length. His fingers traced over the numbers, 115, 73, 24, 807. If only he knew what secrets they held. Morris must have stared at those pages many times over the following years, but he wasn't a code breaker. He was a failed merchant turned innkeeper. The key to unlocking them remained a mystery. After nearly two decades without progress, Morris realized Beale's ciphers would never reveal their secrets to him. So he reached out to a trusted friend, someone younger, with a sharp mind and enough free time to dedicate to the task. He picked his friend John. Morris offered John the box on one condition. If John found the treasure, he should divide his portion of the riches between their two families and distribute the remaining treasure to any living relatives of the original expedition. Morris was trusting him with his most valuable possession, and John swore an oath to honor his wishes. As he left the house, John may have felt a shiver of excitement at the thought of the gold. Little did he know, his obsession with Beale's treasure would lead him to ruin. Coming up, John Cracks the First Cipher. What could be more shocking than uncovering the deep, dark secrets behind history's biggest stories? Realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie. Hi, it's Carter from the podcast series Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction and discover that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. From the government's link to Bigfoot and the otherworldly secrets of the Vatican to the Grateful Dead's role in the spread of LSD and more. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may just be outlandish claims. Others may make you rethink everything. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, back to the story. Robert Morris died in 1863, one year after delivering Thomas Beale's ciphers to his anonymous friend, who were calling John. When Morris passed, John became the only person alive who knew about the treasure. He told his immediate family and a single trusted confidant. We can imagine their skepticism when he opened the metal box and showed them the pages of seemingly random numbers. Without the key, he'd have to rely on his wits to unlock Beale's ciphers. 
So he taught himself cryptography, the science of code making and code breaking. Through his research, John realized Beale had used a particular kind of system called a book cipher, one of the most secure coding processes in existence. The first known reference to book ciphers appeared in the 16th century, only a few decades after the printing press made texts widely available. Since then, cryptographers have invented a number of versions, but the basic premise remains the same, to turn an ordinary book into a cloak of secrecy. Imagine you're the code maker and you want to send a secret message. You start by picking a book you know the other person has. This could be the Bible or a sappy romance novel. The content really doesn't matter. Next, choose a page within that book and number each word from the beginning. Say the first phrase on that page reads, how are you? How would be number one, R would be number two, you would be three, and so forth. Now, to spell out a message, you pick the first letter of certain words you want from that page and write down their corresponding numbers. For example, suppose you want your message to say, wait. All the reader sees is 10-26-5-15. But if the reader has the right key, meaning the right book and page, they can decipher it. The tenth word on the book's page begins with the letter W. The twenty-sixth word starts with the letter A. The fifth word begins with an I, and the fifteenth with a T, spelling wait. Once John realized Beale had used a book cipher, he only needed to figure out what text Beale had used as a key. John searched for every scrap of information he could find about Beale in the hopes it would lend insight into the man's mind and more importantly, his library. And then an epiphany. He thought about Beale's name. Perhaps the J in Thomas J. Beale stood for Jefferson, as in Thomas Jefferson, the former president of the United States. Jefferson was also one of the writers of the Declaration of Independence. John wondered if America's founding document was Beale's key. He took a copy of the Declaration and numbered every word, starting from the top. Then, he matched the numbers on the first cipher, one by one. The result was absolute gibberish, but John kept going. He repeated the process with cipher number two, and it was a success. To his amazement, the letters spelled out a message. It was the location of the treasure or at least a general approximation of where to find it. In the cipher, Beale declared he'd buried his loot in a vault six feet beneath Bedford County, Virginia, about four miles from a tavern called Buford's. Beale said his trove contained so much gold and silver, he'd had to make multiple trips to bring it all to its hiding spot, namely, 2,921 pounds of gold, nearly 5,100 pounds of silver, and $13,000 worth of jewels. In today's money, that haul would be worth more than $60 million. The message also told John what awaited him when he cracked the other two codes. Cipher number three included the full names of everyone in Beale's expedition, 
and instructions for how to distribute the spoils amongst their families. But cipher number one was the Holy Grail. It contained the exact coordinates of the treasure. Without it, John would have to search many miles of wooded mountainous terrain. And since the gold had been buried six feet deep more than 40 years earlier, it would be like looking for a needle in a haystack. He had to crack the remaining two codes. But try as he might, the final keys eluded John. Years went by without any new developments. The hunt took a terrible toll on his life. He neglected his family, his friends, and his business. He wrote that when he began his search, he was relatively wealthy. By the end, he was living in abject poverty. At the urging of one of his friends, John finally swore off the hunt for good in the early 1880s. Like Robert Morris, John didn't want the secret of Beale's lost treasure to die with him. Someone would break the ciphers eventually, and that person deserved the reward. So John compiled everything he knew into a pamphlet. He carefully copied the ciphers, along with Beale's letters, verbatim. He added a few comments about Morris and himself, but kept his name out of it. He finished with a warning for future treasure hunters. If they weren't careful, the obsession would ruin their lives, too. John gifted the pamphlet to his close friend, James B. Ward. He hoped Ward would be able to make some money off its publication, and he believed Robert Morris would have approved. Ward copyrighted the pamphlet in 1885. He used his company's equipment to print hundreds of copies and sold them in town for 50 cents apiece. But when a fire allegedly swept through the printing house, it destroyed the press and most of the pamphlets Ward had. Some of the remaining copies were sold or discarded, so over time, the document became extremely rare. Nevertheless, in 1897, a copy landed in the hands of a young stenographer named Clayton Hart, who believed he could use the dead to lead him to the riches. Coming up, a hypnotic trance brings Hart one step closer to treasure. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son? They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Now back to the story. For 80 years, Thomas Beale's treasure sat undisturbed, its existence a mystery to all but a handful of people. Then, in the summer of 1897, 
stenographer Clayton Hart copied several pages of gibberish labeled simply numbers 1, 2, and 3. Clayton had never seen anything like it. He reached out to the person who'd sent him the papers, an old railroad clerk who had gotten hold of the ciphers. This man believed the pages led to Beale's treasure, which, according to him, was buried at the foot of a Virginia mountain range called the Peaks of Otter. The word treasure was all Clayton had to hear. Clayton had a reputation as a miser, frugal to a fault. For someone so obsessed with money, the prospect of becoming instantly rich was too enticing to pass up. His new life's mission was to find Beale's gold. Clayton began by scrutinizing the ciphers, but he couldn't make heads or tails of them. He convinced his brother George to join him in his quest to become a full-time treasure hunter. Their first stop was a library in Lynchburg. They methodically borrowed book after book, hoping to find a text that could decode the other two ciphers. They tried Shakespeare, the Constitution, and dozens more. But nothing worked. So they took a different approach. They visited the man who'd first published the pamphlet, James Ward. By this point, Ward's health was failing, but his memory was still intact. He confirmed the authenticity of the pamphlet, but didn't have any new information to add. At their wit's end, they decided to try a more unorthodox tactic, the occult. At the time, Clayton was fascinated by the techniques of mesmerism and hypnosis. Today, hypnosis is a common practice among psychologists who use the power of suggestion to treat mental health issues like addiction and anxiety. However, at the end of the 19th century, it was still shrouded in superstition. Spiritualists believed they could use it to channel supernatural energy and even communicate with the dead. And Clayton had one ghost in mind, Thomas J. Beale. But it seems Clayton was hesitant to let any other psychics in on his plan. He began teaching himself how to hypnotize people he knew and trusted. This included an 18-year-old boy in Roanoke, Virginia, whom we'll call David. He was particularly susceptible to the technique. Clayton invited David to his house, where he set up a room with a crystal ball. He put the young man into a trance and asked about Beale. David gripped the ball tightly as Clayton ordered him to gaze into the past, back to November 1819, to Buford's Tavern, the same location mentioned in cipher number two. While he gazed into the crystal ball, David claimed to see a caravan of covered wagons coming over the ridge. As they drew closer, he noticed they were driven by heavily armed men. He described their leader as large and handsome. David watched the convoy arrive at the tavern and tie up their horses. They appeared cagey and didn't want anyone handling their bags. After the boss checked in, he locked himself in his room. Then David paused. He was speechless. Clayton pressed him until the boy shouted what he saw. Jewels, by gosh! Diamonds! Rubies! Pearls! Emeralds! Clayton remembered what Beale had written in the second cipher. 
He traded a portion of their silver for $13,000 worth of jewels in St. Louis. That must have been what David was witnessing. With a little more encouragement, David went on to describe iron pots, likely filled with gold, matching those Beale mentioned in cipher number two. In addition, he saw objects made by Native Americans, like bows and arrows. By now, Clayton was convinced this trance was the real deal, but he still didn't have what he came for. So he pushed David to go further, to follow Beale as he left Buford's tavern. David saw Beale and one other person ride off on horseback to a nearby cavern. This matched what Beale wrote in his letters. He said they considered leaving the treasure in a cave until they realized it wasn't secluded enough. Afterward, David claimed Beale rode up a little hill next to Goose Creek, close to the Peaks of Otters. He marked a tree with his knife, then rode away. Shortly after, Beale returned with the rest of his men and dug a massive pit. They lowered the iron pots full of treasure into the earth and filled it in. That was all the information Clayton needed. He and his brother George were overwhelmed by the vision's specificity and couldn't wait to get their hands on that trove. A few months later, in the spring of 1899, the brothers and David set out for the ruins of Buford's Tavern in the town of Montvale, Virginia. They brought picks, shovels, rope, and an assortment of other tools. Under the cover of darkness, they walked along Goose Creek, searching for the mound from David's vision. After about four miles, David sensed something. He ran across the railroad tracks and up a hill. He pointed at the ground, yelling, quote, There's the treasure. Can you see it? The Hart brothers put down their lanterns and started shoveling up dirt. They took turns every ten minutes, expecting each strike to be their last. But six hours later, they were still digging. David continued to insist the treasure was down there, only now he was pointing left underneath a great oak tree. Once the sun came up, they stopped empty-handed and traveled the four miles back to town in silence. Clayton returned by himself the following week and used dynamite to blow the tree up by its roots. But he found only dirt. Still, he believed fame and fortune awaited him around the next corner. He'd gotten a taste for the hunt. And like John, Clayton couldn't let go. He returned to Goose Creek repeatedly, but always came home a little more dejected than before. His brother George realized the only way to find Beale's treasure was by breaking the other ciphers. But he wasn't sure if that was even possible. In 1925, he reached out to Colonel Fabian, a businessman who ran a laboratory where individuals were able to apply their code-breaking skills. Fabian had his team analyze the Beale ciphers. His reply was disheartening, to say the least. Fabian said the chances of anyone cracking the ciphers was next to nothing. Even though the process for making a book cipher was simple, the resulting code was astoundingly complex. It didn't matter if George spent two or two hundred years trying. Without Beale's help, it was impossible. After Clayton died in 1949, 
George published an essay about the ciphers. He didn't say whether he believed the lost gold was real. He simply relayed what had happened as best as he remembered. But George's essay lit a fire in the hearts of would-be treasure hunters. It captured the attention of a husband and wife duo who wrote a popular book on the subject. Although they didn't find the treasure either, their research brought Beale's ciphers into the public eye, which may not have been a good thing. As interest in the ciphers grew, hordes of searchers armed with shovels and metal detectors descended on the small town of Montvale. They dug holes in people's backyards and had run-ins with the local authorities. In 1983, one group of hunters used a diesel-powered backhoe to dig up a cemetery. A neighbor must have believed they were grave robbers and called the police. After being arrested, they were told to never return to Virginia again. Meanwhile, the more scientifically-minded individuals focused on the ciphers themselves. They founded the Beale Cipher Association, which in its original form gave members access to inside information in exchange for a cut of the treasure should it ever be discovered. The association's membership includes notable cryptographers who have worked for the CIA, NSA, and prominent universities. One of them, Dr. Carl Hammer, used a computer to run a brute force attack on the ciphers, trying book after book, hoping he'd get lucky. He didn't. The mystery has also attracted historians, hucksters, and amateur sleuths. But the gold has remained hidden. Some of these failed hunters argued there never was a treasure to begin with. Others said it had already been found. But maybe that doesn't matter. The most alluring aspect of Beale's treasure may not be the potential payout. It's what that money represents. Thomas Beale was an enigma steeped in the mythology of the American Wild West. He left his comfortable world behind and rode off in search of danger. Now, modern-day treasure hunters feel that same pull. It's a voice inside your head that says, get off your chair and go see the world. Do something unexpected and amazing while you still can. That voice is the spirit of adventure. Can you hear it calling your name? Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with part two of the Beale Ciphers. For more information on the Beale Ciphers, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Beale Treasure, A History of a Mystery by Peter Wiemeister, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Xander Bernstein, with writing assistance by Natalie Pritzowski, Lori Gottlieb, and Angela Jorgensen. Fact-checking by Bennett Logan, 
and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. 